Hi, welcome to Not All Lawyers Have Law Degrees, plus other useful things we found out about becoming a lawyer and the people that do. Hi, I'm Bridget. I'm a lawyer in the BBC, and welcome to the last in our special series for Career Changes. Today, I'm speaking to Pauline Campbell. She's a senior lawyer at London Borough of Waltham Forest and the author of the brilliantly named and recently released book, Rice and Peas and Fish and Chips. It was Pauline's dream as a child to be a lawyer, and she made her move into the law after a long career as a housing benefits officer. But I had to start off by asking her, why rice and peas and fish and chips? For me, growing up in Britain as a first generation, I loved rice and peas and fish and chips, which we would have every Sunday and Thursday evening. And um, fish and chips we would have on a Friday night. So fish and chips would be a Friday, Sunday would be rice and peas. It was our way of life. We had the best of both cultures, the best of both foods. And if I had to choose one, I couldn't. And that really encompasses who who we are as a generation. That's really nice. I mean, I'm not asking you to choose. Absolutely. Um, I think I thought that also it might be that you would eat the two dishes together. As someone who didn't grow up in Britain, no. Never. The two just don't work. And that makes it even better because it shows the complete difference in the dishes, but how important both of them are equally to you because of your culture. So, yeah, no, you could never have rice and peas with fish and chips. If you did, I don't think it would taste too good. Sacrilegious, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And for those who don't know, where was your family from before you moved to England? Mum and dad were from Jamaica. So mum came from a parish called St Anne's and dad came from a parish called St Elizabeth's, but they came together in Kingston, the centre of um, Jamaica. My dad saw my mum one day and then the rest history <laughs> <laughs> oh that's sweet that's sweet and then and then you grew up in in east london around hackney yeah cockney girl born in east london you i mean i'm skipping over a lot of steps but you worked as a, a housing benefits officer for islington council until sort of 1997 mm. and then for the london borough of hackney where you'd grown up and then you decided in 1998 that it was the right time to do a law degree and you studied at, at what was then north london university yes And you talk a lot about the law being your dream. What was it that propelled that change? I think when I was younger at school, I always wanted to be a lawyer. And the funny thing is, we used to watch all these programs on TV, like LA Law and Crown Court and all these things. But I know it's sensationalised law, but I always loved the idea of being a lawyer. It was a dream for me as a child. So I think when I reached my 30s, it was just a natural progression when I was doing work that involved a lot of complex things, drafting and being an advocate as a black secretary for the black workers group within Islington, I realised that I had a calling for advocacy and representing people. So that the law was a natural progression when I thought it's time to think about where I'm going. And looking at all the unravelings with Stephen Lawrence and all the awful things that were happening, I said, you need to use your talent and you need to find something that works for you that might take you to another level and help you to help other people. Stephen Lawrence was a young boy of 18 years old who was coming home from college and was at a bus stop in Eltham with his friend and he was stabbed by five white males 
The key to this is that when Stephen died, nobody would take responsibility via the investigation process. Nobody really cared about this young man who had lost his life. And it really showed the struggle that the black community had in being recognised. And it was an awful injustice. And so it built and built until it became the McPherson report, which actually determined the police to be institutionally racist. And it took them 19 years to finally get justice for their son. And only two defendants were actually found guilty because they found DNA. That period of time for the black community only emphasised the the lack of justice that existed for people of colour. So I was part of the black workers group at that time and I was growing into a real consciousness about who I was and what I wanted. And I realised that I owe it to myself to do something positive For me, even though housing benefits work was very good, I needed to do something which would take me to another level. And hence, that was one of the biggest things for me, really. It made me really think about that. So, yeah, it was a really enlightening time for all of us within the black community at that time. So you've had this realisation at, I think it's around 37 that you... 33. 33, okay. Uh This is the time to enter the profession or begin the journey to enter the profession. You study at university and then you go on to do the legal practice course, the LPC. You talk about that being a bit of an alienating experience. I, I wonder if you could explain a bit about why that was. I think that law in itself from the beginning to the end is really elitist. It really is. And with the LPC, um, at least at North London, it was mixed. It was very culturally diverse, so it was great. And the lecturers were amazing. Um, So it was a really good experience for me. And one of my lecturers says, Pauline, you do realise doing too many notes is just as bad as doing too few. Stop it. Because I had all these notes that I just kept writing (laughs) because I wanted to get everything right. And so for me, when I went to the, I went to Store Street, I went to the, the law school in just off the back of Gooch Street, College of Law. And it was very elitist there. Very, very. Because they had two sets of qualifications. One was commercial and the other was the general one, which I did. And the commercial was not many people of colour was in the commercial element of that training. And one day I went to that class by mistake because I thought my class was listed there. And I walked in and I looked around the room and they looked at me as if to say, what are you doing here? And when I spoke to the lecturer, they said, oh, no, this is the wrong class. And when I looked around the room, it was as clear that that, that's not for me. And I also went to the careers office to speak to them about a future. What did they expect? What, What could I expect with what I'd achieved? And they basically made it clear to me, you know, you're looking at law centers, you're looking at general citizens advice. That's the kind of work that they were pushing me into. Nothing near the city, nothing with big law firms, none of that was on the table for me. So when I walked out, I felt really awful and thought, this is really elitist. This is how it is. But Let's just get this qualification, Paul, in and see where you go from there. Don't let it distract you in any way. I just let it go through my head. But other people, younger people, may just take that on board and say, okay, that's where I'm going to end up. Sounds like you had that experience. You knew you had the capacities, of course, to pursue whatever career you wanted in the law. Maybe that's one of the positive aspects of mid-career changes. I would definitely say that if you're a mature student, you've already 
you've got more focus for a start because you've got more to lose. When you're younger, you can spread your wings and do different things, maybe try different things. But when you're older, you've got a short shelf life because you know that you've got to get moving really quickly. So you're focused and you're, you don't go to the pub and have drinks. And anyway, you've got commitments. You can't do all of that. Boy, when I was younger, it would have been great and I would have spent all my time having a laugh. But when you enter a career midterm, you've got financial concerns. You've also got to think about where am I going to go at the end of this? I've still got bills to pay. I've still got commitments. So you're more adamant that your future is significantly important because you can't afford to drop the ball because you're risking so much by doing it at that time in your life. Mm. And when we talk about those commitments, I mean, people listening will know the cost of some of these conversion courses and the LPC and whatnot are just astronomical. And on top of that, as you say, you were working and studying. How did you do that? What was that balance like? You're literally on autopilot because it's kind of scary to know. I set myself up for three years to do this. Can I do 25 hours a week plus do library work plus catch up with all my. And so for me, I guess what I did was I just focused my mind on succeeding. That's what I did. And I just cut out social life. There was no social life. I lost quite a few friends and kept my close friends. But I couldn't go anywhere or do anything um, because my weekends were study. I had to keep my letters up. I had to make sure that I did what I needed to do in order to survive. So I would just do a lot of all-nighters for uni um, in order to keep up with the studies. So you, you, if you have something to do, you just do it all night. And then you try and catch some sleep when you can. <laughs> Drinking a lot of coffee along the way, I assume, or something to to keep you going. Because I don't like coffee. I love the smell, but I hate the taste. Oh, you saw what I mean? So there you go. Getting along so well, and then you say that. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I don't know how you did it. I had my white Cavalier car. That was brilliant. That car took me back and forth, back and forth. (laughs) I loved that car. It looked after me, let's put it that way. By the three years, though, the poor thing was absolutely knackered. So it just did its job. (laughs) Yeah, carried you around town. Carried me around town. So you do all this study and uh, you're making all these sacrifices and then you apply for training contracts, which I think, as everyone knows, is one of the most difficult paths. You secured a training contract in the magistrate's court in Kent. That's right, isn't it? Yes, that's right. That was the scariest part because everything else was down to me until that moment. Then I had to rely on somebody taking a punt on me, taking a chance on me. And that was scary because that is when I I don't have any control over the process. All I can do is think about where am I going to go? And when I saw this, I, I sent applications to I just got the yellow pages and the yellow pages is effectively the, the the book version of the directory, which is now online for everybody. If you want to get something, you Google it. There was no Google then. So um, I got the yellow pages and just wrote to every single solicitor um, and they, 20 came back and I kept it in a yellow folder all saying no, but thanks, we'll keep you on our records. And then I saw this advertisement in um, The Guardian with a woman saying how she got a training contract as a, a legal advisor in the magistrate's court. And what they wanted was people who had previous work experience because they needed somebody who could hit the ground running. And it was perfect. I applied and and got an interview and the rest is history, really. I got the job and I was 
really pleased. But Kent was a million miles away from Hackney. So a magistrate's court, you're working on criminal, civil, I assume family and youth courts. Exactly. They're the four. So you, you cover those four seats. Yeah. Um, and the criminal court is a mixture of everything, the remands, um, cases that go up to the Crown Court, murder, sexual offences, all aspects you deal with that and you send it up. You deal with the general traffic courts, which is a nightmare, a pain, a bore. Why is, um, it, why is that? Just, because traffic courts, you're going through hundreds of offences, motoring offences, giving people three points, giving people six points, and then you have to go through the evidence. And it's just one of those courts. They have specialist courts now for that, so that's good. But when you do traffic courts, it was what you call boring. I found that the civil courts was great for me because I used to work in local authority, but they were the most complicated because they're called non-CPS so effectively, they're not the Crown Prosecution Courts, they're local authority courts. And you get a plethora of all types of law in that court from local authorities. And no clerk likes to do those courts because they it's just from left field. You don't know what you're going to get. So I would go into court early and I would speak to all the prosecutors and the defence and say, what the hell is this about? Look up the legislation and have it ready for the magistrates to advise them. But the hardest court was the youth courts and the family courts. Complicated legislation involved in youth um, and dealing with them and getting those right was awful. Family courts, completely and utterly intensive when you're dealing with contact issues and families. And I I was in one court where I spent an hour trying to persuade a father and a mother to agree on a contact. And they were arguing the whole time. But luckily, because I'd worked in an environment where I dealt with people on a regular basis in housing, I was able to get them to come to a middle road. But it took forever for them to do it. And you can see how angry families are, how angry two people can be when it comes to their children. But for me, it was the best training I could have asked for. Really, really good training. Yeah, what a way to cut your teeth in the law. Oh, yeah. And it also made me realise about my own insecurities because there wasn't many black defendants there. There was a 15-year-old girl who came to court and she was really angry, young black girl, and she was in the youth court and she was really angry with everybody and kicking off. And I was able to sit with her and talk to her about where do you want to go? Is this what you want? And you are so bright. Look at where you're going. And within minutes, she calmed down because she saw me. And it made all the difference to her. And the first time I saw a black male defendant, and I only saw a few, I went home that night and I cried my eyes out because I was the only legal advisor in the court who was a black woman. He was the only defendant in court who was a black man. And he was sentenced and he kept saying, this isn't fair. I don't feel that I'm being treated right. And whether I agreed with the court or whether I didn't, I couldn't help being black. And I felt really, really strongly about how he was feeling. And I did my job. I did my job to the best of my ability. He got sentenced. And that night I went home, I cried my eyes out because I thought, I just don't know if I can do this. Can I do this? And and it's something that you you can't escape yourself. But after a while, I began to get used to the idea that this is law. And you've got to try and separate yourself from it um, Mm. and just do the job. And that's what you learn to do. 
I imagine that is kind of the the coping mechanism. If we talk about sort of what the courtroom looked like, you talk a lot in the book about a lack of inclusivity in the workplace. And there's one example I was hoping you could talk about around video conferencing. Yeah. What happened there? Well, I was covering the video court for the first time and the video court was for defendants who were on remand and who are not coming to court. So you do them over the video link and it's just extending their bail or keeping them in custody, that kind of thing. So when I went on the video link for the first time, the camera came on and I had a white shirt on and my black jacket and I'm a dark skinned black woman. And all you could see was my teeth and my shirt because the camera was so badly lit. It was awful. And when I went on camera, I didn't know what to do. I felt awful, not because I'm not, I'm not proud of being a black woman, but because the picture was just so distorted that I heard the defendants laughing. I heard the security guards laughing. I heard the prison officers laughing. And when I looked at court, people were looking at me and then looking down. And I couldn't turn it off because that meant the court would have to end. And I had to see four defendants that day on the video link. So I had to keep going. And so for nearly an hour and a half, I had to go through that humiliation of these people laughing at me. And um, I was so angry, but so embarrassed and so humiliated. But I saw it through to the end. And as soon as the video link was over, I went straight to my manager and said, how could you do that? I mean, if you look at the picture, it's disgusting. And she was so apologetic. She said how sorry she was that it had happened. And within a week, they'd sorted out the lighting because I said, I refuse to go on that video link again until you sort out the lighting because I never want that to happen to me or anyone else. They sorted out the lighting within a couple of weeks. But what it showed me was when you are putting things together and you are putting this video link together, you completely ignore the fact that we are living in a diverse society. You only cater for white faces. You don't cater for any other faces. And hence, I had to go through that humiliation for you to change and understand what you did wrong. And that is the key to lack of inclusivity. We don't need to be in the room for you to think about us because we exist and we are part of society. So even if we're not a part of your current workforce, we may be. So you need to factor us into what you do. And that is key to everything um, because thankfully no one else has to be humiliated like that because of what I did. But I never have forgotten how I feel. I still feel that embarrassment and humiliation today. Mm. It's horrible. I'm so sorry you went through that. And as you say, it's a it's an important issue around representation and probably one that happened with the use of Zoom and other technologies throughout the pandemic. It's actually happening now in my office today. Um, I, there's a basement downstairs um, where I've gone on, on Zoom and there's no cap, there's no windows. So when you go on camera, it is completely dark as a dark skinned black person. And a week ago, I told them we need to fix this. But today, this morning, the facilities manager approached me and said, we're getting webcams in, lighting webcams for downstairs, and we're going to see if that's going to make a difference. And if it doesn't, we're going to look at what we can do. And I said, thank you very much. This is what I want to hear. 
because it's not intentional. It's something when you fix that room up downstairs, just like Kent, you didn't factor someone of my skin color into it and you need to stop doing that. And so now they're beginning to get it. He told me this morning that that's what they're doing and that's brilliant news because it shows people are listening. Oh, absolutely. And it's such a... It's such a small thing, isn't it? A filter on on a, on a Zoom or other kind of video yeah. link, but it has such important implications for how people feel included or not in in a workplace or a society. Exactly. I mean, if we move on to inclusive workplaces, so you qualify as a lawyer in 2005 at the age of 41, and I know one of your first jobs was in Hounslow, but then you also subsequently worked back in Hackney. Mm, so yeah. your first job... Um, as a qualified lawyer, you're in the prosecution's team for Hounslow Council, and you reflect on that as being a really positive experience in part because the team really respected and recognised your previous work as a housing benefits officer. How important was that to you that you had that experience and that gave you respect in that first job? I would say that it was crucial. Um, everyone is good at something. And every lawyer is good at something else other than the law. And you have to take the skills you have and bring them to the law. And for me, being a housing benefits officer for 14 years was a fantastic skill. It's an incredibly complex area of law benefits. Mm. And to understand it is a real bonus. So I brought all that experience with me, but I also brought my Cockney accent which really made a difference because they had not come across the lawyer with a Cockney accent who was a black woman who was from Tottenham. It's not something Hounslow were used to. But that also meant that it wasn't about them and us. And most all the staff were white. There was no black staff in, in the um, audit team at the time. It was just so it didn't matter what colour we were. We had a mutual respect for each other because of our knowledge. So they were knowledgeable in their area. I was knowledgeable in mine. And I took all my experience and shared it with them. And they took all their experience and shared it with me. And we were able to come to a middle road and an understanding. So if they had a problem, they would come to me. And when I said I was going to leave, they said, would I mind coming back and working weekends? Because they didn't want me to leave. Um, But it was an enlightening experience. But I loved the respect that I got from them. And I, in turn, gave respect back because sometimes lawyers and their clients, it's them and us. It should never be them and us. We work together as a unit in order for things to go smoothly. And I find that that really makes a difference with how I do my job. Personal skills is so crucial to becoming a good lawyer. If anyone's listening, thinking, wow, I want to do this as well, I want to change careers and enter the legal profession, what advice would you have as a career changer? I would say that the first thing you need to be clear on is that you're committed. Is this what you really want? You've got to be really clear on what the requirements are at the end. Because if you want something and you're passionate enough, nothing will stop you. What I will say to you, and this is the best advice I can give, is if you make the decision You must be strong in your resolve because you will get self-doubters and those self-doubters will be the most dangerous to you at the beginning of your journey because that's when you'll be thinking, oh, no, 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 I can't do it. If somebody says to you, it's going to be too much to take on, you need to be the strongest at that point because when you are already in the law, you're invested in it. 
So that's fine. You're stronger then. So you've got to be focused. You've also got to look at different types of qualifications. You don't have to do a straightforward law degree. And sometimes coming to law with different facets, all the things that you've got with as, as part of your history make you a stronger person for law because you're coming to the table with experience. And so that is a good thing. Look at what you want to bring to the table and look at the different ways in which you can qualify. There's apprenticeship, solicitor's apprenticeships out there. There's the straightforward traditional way. There's silex. There's all which you can do alongside work. There's so many different ways you can qualify as a lawyer now that you've got to look at what works for you. Yes, the traditional way is is a good way, but it is not the only way. And you've got to find the one that works for you. And so I would suggest that you think about that and also look at forums. There's some fantastic legal forums out there and get yourself into court. Just put your coat on, go into a public gallery and just have a listen to something in the magistrate's courts, because most courts are public. And just have a listen and see what what they're about. And then you'll be on the right road to making your mind up at the end of the journey, because you know, this is what I really want. And then there's always people like me. You can always give me a bell. You can always contact me. And other people like me exist too. So that's what we do to set you on your journey. That was Pauline Campbell. And now I'm joined by my colleague, Kush, from BBC Legal. Hi, Kush. How are you going? Hey, Bridget. How's it going? Good. Kush, I found the title of Pauline's book, Rice and Peas and Fish and Chips, so interesting. And clearly there was a lot of thought that went into it. Were you also really captivated by it? Oh, from the beginning, yeah. I mean, for, for me, it kind of really resonated because the idea of having two foods and two cultures and not being able to choose one was, was really interesting. I mean, for me, I think it would be paneer and pie or paneer and pizza, maybe. <laughs> but same concept. I completely agree. I, I won't make the same mistake of asking if you're supposed to eat them together because now I know you're not. <laughs> um, one of the things that struck me was her message about drawing on your previous experience in, you know, a former career, a former life, as it were. So for her as a housing benefits officer, is that something that kind of resonated to you across this series? Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. I think it was it was something that we've had a few times through, you know, Muxi, I mentioned it, and Rachel as mm. well, about how you can harness your, you know, experience and your skills uh, from your previous career or careers and bring that. And I think that law firms and barristers chambers and, and employers more generally are really interested in in that and, and value it because it brings an extra dimension to the work that you do. I think it's it's really good advice from Pauline. And I loved, I don't know what you thought about this, but I loved her her real practical advice about the beginning of your career change being the most perilous bit. And that's when you have the most self-doubts. Um, and that's when you've got to be really, really strong. Yeah, no, totally. I mean, Pauline didn't come across to me as someone who had any self-doubt, such yeah. a strong, such a strong woman, but I totally agree. And um, the other thing that I thought was um, was great about Pauline is the reality in which she spoke about being on kind of, I think she used the expression autopilot. And one of the things that's, that's also struck me about, you know, all the people we've spoken to in this career changer session is their drive. I'm just not sure that I could have their, their <laughs> dedication, you know, juggling jobs, other jobs and family commitments mortgages yeah totally absolutely (laughs) i mean i think you and i spoke recently about muktir and him saying year one was for child one year two was for the house year three was the law degree or whatever it was there's such planning that goes into 
a career change, but particularly a career change into the law where there are significant financial responsibilities you take on, you know, the cost of doing a lot of the um, a lot of the professional courses that you have to undertake um, is so substantial. And also you're at a point in your life where, you know, you might have kids and other commitments, mm. unlike, you know, you and I, when we were at uni, it's just a completely different point in your life where you have a different perspective and I think it's really honest that perspective as well to say you kind of are on autopilot and you're just putting one foot in front of the other and getting it done you sort of have to make it work don't you yeah. whatever happens because you've got things that, that depend on you and people that depend on you very inspiring as well and I mean the other thing that, that stood out about inclusivity um I really like the fact that her experience of at Hounslow where she said that you know she was there were no black staff in the team she was the only the only black person in the, in the team but it, it was still an inclusive environment mm. it sounded like it was a great place to work and they had mutual respect and so on and it's something that really struck a chord I think because I mean for me, my current team for example I'm the only person of color but it's a brilliant team to work in and I think and it's a really inclusive place and it couldn't be better and I think that shows that also you know you want people that they look like you that have some experiences but sometimes you are you know the, the first person to do something or the first person in that team or the only person but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's not an inclusive or welcoming place. Mm. What is it about your team, your current team, not to not to big up them too much, but what is it that makes that team <laughs> inclusive? Well, Pauline said mutual respect. And I think that's a really big, big part yeah. of it. People kind of want to know where you're coming from and what your perspective is on things and just having that sort of interest in each other and, and kind of... Um, yeah, listening to each other and quite simple things like that, not having these sort of preconceptions um, and being interested in each other's kind of stories and culture and so on, make a big make a big part of that. I think um, it allows you to be yourself, um, which is really important. And I think as a as a career changer, I'm sure the, you know if you can be yourself and say, you know, I'm not pretending to kind of be a year one law student. I've got this other career, and I can bring some of that experience. I'm sure that's also relevant and, and, and useful for like an inclusive workplace and I, I, did you catch the one of the one of the last things she said i'm pretty sure for people listening was didn't she say that people can call her and people like her for for advice so i mean i think that's a great tip um lean on lean on people that you know or people that you would like to get to know um get their advice so i guess pick up the phone to pauline for some <laughs> inspiring and practical advice So if you're interested in a legal career in local government or another one that Pauline mentioned was a court legal advisor role, we've posted some useful links in our show notes. You can find more episodes on Apple, Spotify, Acast and everywhere you find good podcasts. Do get in touch with us on Instagram. Just search Not All Lawyers pod and use the hashtag Not All Lawyers. So that's it for this mini series on career changing into law. We hope you found it useful. It's really true. Not all lawyers have law degrees. So with a special thanks to our producer, Troy Holmes, and our executive producer, Lucy Mormon, and of course, to all our fantastic presenters and guests. This has been Not All Lawyers from BBC Legal. <laughs> <laughs>